Our family listened to uh, Jeff's sermon from last Sunday on the long ride home from Missouri last week. And, and man, my first thought was honestly, how is Jeff getting better at preaching? I, he, I thought he was already there. But honestly, it's not about Jeff, right? It's, it's about the word. It's about the text. And, I, and so Jeff's text was from 1 John really challenging us that, that he said our works identify us as Christians they do not define us as Christians. And obviously, 1 John sort of takes up that mantle of, of giving the test of how you might identify whether you are truly in Christ. But Jeff was careful to say that our works don't define us as Christians. So 1 John takes up the first half of that statement. You shall know them by their, by their deeds, by their fruits. Our text this morning really takes up the second half of that statement. That our, that our good works, they don't make us Christians. We are not made Christians by our fruits. Dane Ortland says it this way, true Christianity is inside out, it's not outside in. So we don't obey God in order to be made pure, we obey God because we have been made pure through the work of Jesus Christ. And that's the, the thrust of our passage this morning. I know it's been a few weeks since we've been in Luke, but remember our passage kind of follows on the heels of Jesus' warning the crowd there that they must respond to him and to his message. In fact, he, he told them, if you're not with me, you are against me. To be, to, to be somewhat neutral is to stand against Christ. So now he's talking to the religious leaders and he's grouping them in that group that has rejected him. So we might say it this way, that immorality, overt immorality, some of the things that Neil even prayed about this morning, overt immorality might be the more obvious, the more seeable way to reject Jesus. But turning morality into a means of becoming a Christian is the more subtle and therefore the easiest way to reject Jesus. So we're going to bounce around a little bit in the text. In fact, we've said that Luke sort of structures his gospel in such a way that there's a rough chronology, but he kind of picks and chooses what he wants to do to make his own point. And so that's sort of how we're going to take our text this morning. We're going to hop around a little bit to try to best capture and explain the text. But hopefully by the time we're done, we will have dealt with the entire passage. So there's four points this morning. The problem with the symptoms of the results of and the alternative to obeying God in order to be cleansed by sin. The symptoms of, the results of, the alternative to, oh, yeah, I missed one there. The problem with obeying in order to be cleansed from sin. Let's start with that first one. We see it in the first four verses there. The problem with obeying in order to be purified or, or in order to be cleansed from sin Look there in verses 37 and 38. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. So in the, in the midst of Jesus' teaching, one of the Pharisees invites Jesus over for a meal. Now, now if you've been with us through this whole time in Luke, we know that this is not actually the first invitation that Jesus has received from a Pharisee to dine 
at his table. And so in Luke chapter 7, a Pharisee named Simon invited Jesus over. And we saw in chapter 7 that these dinners, they were public affairs. It's not like like my house, if I have you over for dinner and somebody else just walks in the door, it's a little weird. That, 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 it's culturally different. These were public affairs. And it's clear as Jesus is addressing different sorts of people at this dinner that it was indeed a public affair. There's another overlap with Luke chapter 7, and it's this. It does not go well for the Pharisee. We know, right? The Pharisees were a popular movement. We've seen them show up in the Gospel of Luke. And they had, in some sense, a decent goal that their hope was to encourage purity in Israel so that God would then turn and bless his people. But part of their their desire involved enacting a series of extra-biblical commands and regulations that were designed to sort of even be a a further fence from God's law. So you had God's law, and then the Pharisees and the lawyers, they wanted to have another fence that they came up with so that you don't even get close to sinning. I don't know if there's any recovering legalists here this morning, but but sometimes I know my own heart. I wish like, man, I just wish God would tell me what to do, like right in every single situation. So I, I feel that. Well, those guys scratch this, this itch, and it's not actually as good as we might imagine. And so they're actually shocked in verse 38 when Jesus doesn't wash his hands before a meal. Now, before all the children revolt against mom, asking them to wash their hands. We need to understand this isn't about hygiene, right? This is about ritual purity. In fact, this is the Pharisees' attempt to reflect something that was happening in God's law, these these laws of ritual purity. Things like leprosy, touching a dead body, a bodily discharge, not following certain Uh, cleansing laws would, in fact, make a person unclean in Israel. Now, these laws, they had a practical purpose, but the, the primary purpose was to teach people, to teach Israel about the holiness of God and the defilement of man. So you have Israel in the wilderness, and God says he's going to dwell in their midst. He's going to dwell in the midst of his people in the tabernacle. And when God is in your midst, you must be clean. That's what these laws are teaching. God cannot be in the presence of the defiled. If you're not clean, you go outside the camp. You must isolate yourself away from the congregation of Israel and away from the presence of the Lord because you are defiled. You are unclean. So these laws were meant to picture the distinction between God and man. It was a constant, it was supposed to be a constant reminder to Israel of the impossibility. No one could could remain clean. You were going to become unclean at some point. The impossibility of being worthy to dwell with God and the impossibility of God dwelling in the midst of the defiled. It's impossible not to be then touched by this defilement. The Pharisees, though, they had completely missed the picture. They thought if they just added a few more things that they could actually keep themselves from being touched by defilements. 
And we see in Jesus' response here that the problem is that the development goes well deeper than our bodies and it reaches into the depths of our very heart and soul. Look there in verse 39 at Jesus' response. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Now, Jesus does something interesting here. He actually, he begins with the illustration. You wash the outside of the cup. But then in the middle, he's, he just drops the illustration to make his point. But you, he doesn't even finish it. Right? He doesn't say the cup is, but the cup is dirty on the inside. That's, that's implied. He says, you wash the outside of the cup, but you are full of greed and wickedness. So in search of making themselves clean before God, they've actually become hypocrites. They've put a mask over their heart to to, to mask their true defilement so that outwardly they might look clean. But inside they're grasping at all kinds of wickedness and evil desires. They They appear clean on the outside, but on the inside they are unclean. They are defiled. They've washed the outside of the cup but inside they're full of greed and wickedness. Jesus is pointing out the foolishness of of hypocrisy. It it is like doing the dishes and you've got your coffee cup there and and, and, you know it's got that little ring on the bottom of coffee that's sort of baked on because you haven't washed it in time. And, and, And instead of actually washing the whole thing, you just sort of clean the outside and you you hang it back up or you put it back in the cupboard. It is foolishness. You haven't cleaned the part that matters. If you had to pick, do you want the inside clean or do you want the outside clean? Which would you pick? You'd pick the inside. And that's what Jesus is getting at there in verse 40 when he says, you fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? They ignored the fact that God is Lord not only, not only over the outer man, but He is Lord over the inner man. He is Lord not only at what you, over what you do outwardly, but He is Lord over the desires of your heart. And so Jesus says you've neglected that, and therefore you are a fool. You probably know that, that, that fool in the Bible isn't an intellectual insult. It's, it's a spiritual one. A fool in the Bible is not not a dummy. You can be really intelligent, really smart, and be a fool. A fool in the Bible is one who lives as if God does not exist. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So the Pharisees are fools, not because they're overt, outright atheists, but they are blind to God and to his will. They give lip service to following him, even enacting a strict set of extra biblical rules. But inside, what matters? Their hearts, they're far from Christ. So their legalism, their outward rituals and their outward purity actually becomes the very means by which they are rebelling against God and rejecting God's prophet, Jesus Christ, the ultimate prophet, the Son of God. So, a couple of thoughts before we sort of move on to point number two, and we move on to sort of the curses that Jesus pronounces over these religious leaders. First, don't misunderstand the nature of sin. Don't misunderstand the nature of sin. 
The Pharisees did not understand their, their complete and utter defilement before God. They viewed sin as a small problem, so they offered small solutions like washing your hands before you eat. They washed the outside, they, they beautified the outside, assuming that this is all sin needs to be taken care of. Sin can be sort of managed, it can be sort of handled, we just have to do these certain regulations. And then we are pure, we're clear in, in God's sight. But they've missed the nature of defilement. I remember when Tide Pins came out. Man, I thought that was going to be a miracle from above. Where if you spill something on your shirt, this little pen will just miraculously make it disappear. There will be no sign whatsoever that you just spilled a quarter cup of spaghetti on your shirts. But I quickly, I quickly learned the kinds of messes that I make when I eat can't be handled by this stupid little pen. Maybe, maybe they help you. But sin's defilement is, is like that. It is so deep and it's so pervasive that it can't be managed. It can't be erased through some simple religious ceremony. No good works can cover our unclean hearts that we all possess. You know, just consider your thoughts on a given day. Would any of us here this morning be comfortable with, with a thought bubble that's visible to everyone else all day, 24-7, and we're just walking around, everything we think shows up, in the, and everybody gets to read what's going on in our heart and in our thoughts. That is absolutely terrifying. Why? Because even those who are in Christ, even those who have been forgiven of their sins, we, we still have this, this flesh that resides in us. We still have this defilement at some level. The problem of sin is so deep that the solution could not come from within us. We were so defiled before God that the solution could not come from us. It had to come outside of us. It is the kind of problem that only Christ could atone for and only the Spirit of God could apply to our hearts. So don't misunderstand the nature of Sin To minimize sin might make us feel better in the moment. But, but the other thing it does, when we minimize sin, we minimize the work of Christ. Why the cross if sin can be managed? Well, it can't be managed. And it required the cross to purify us from our sins. Secondly, don't, don't ignore what matters most. Your heart is the principal part of you that demands your attention. Now, if you weren't at our biblical counseling conference, I would encourage you to, to, when I get the audio up this week, to find Dave's message on the inner man and the outer man. It was, it was so good. And the differentiation between the inner man and the outer man, uh, it was actually really terrible for me to listen to that before vacation because Dave talked about actually taking care of our bodies. And I'm like running on vacation and drinking water at restaurants. But go, go find that. And consider that teaching, because Dave's making this same point. Your heart, your body matters, right? We don't want to fall off that side of the horse. Your body matters, but your heart is the principal part of you that demands your attention. Now, this world wants to find heart as nothing more than emotions. The Bible uses that quite differently. It's your, your inner man, your thoughts, your desires, your affections. Yes, your emotions, all wrapped up in this word, hearts. Pay attention to your heart. 
I wonder if you think it is possible for us to fall into the same kind of traps that characterize the Pharisees. I do. And Jesus will warn his disciples. We'll look at it next week in chapter 12. Do beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Be careful that the hypocrisy of the Pharisees doesn't infect you even though you are a follower of Jesus Christ. We too can can forget that life is lived before God before it is lived before others. Life is lived before God. You know, we might want to divide our lives into the categories that, that, that the Pharisees tried to. You know, I've got my public life and I've got my private thoughts. We too might fall into this idea that we can divide our lives and we can live a public life and we can have a private life. We might allow bitterness to take root in our soul against someone that we smile and shake hands with at church. We might serve faithfully every week in a ministry while forsaking our time with the Lord in prayer and Bible reading. We might be harboring greed and wickedness while fooling ourselves into thinking we're okay because, hey, everyone thinks I'm doing great. And in this, we run the danger of becoming functional fools. Living as if the opinions of others is what truly matters, that my life is lived before others, and if I consider God, then that's a bonus. Remember, for those in Christ, brothers and sisters, that God has cleansed you from your sins, and he now resides in you through the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, in your hearts, consecrate or set apart Christ as holy. So Christ is Lord. He is Holy. We don't make him holy. We recognize him for who he is and we willingly submit to that. So daily remind yourself that the opinion of others is secondary. What matters is that my life is lived before God. I exist to glorify and please him in all that I do in both my public and my private life, in what's seen and what goes on in my heart. So that's part of the Part of the problem of trying to cleanse ourselves with God before God by our own obedience is that it minimizes sin, doesn't take into consideration the defilement of sin, and it ignores the most important thing about us, our hearts. But what are the, what are the signs of this hypocrisy? How can, I, how can I see it? How can I pick it up? We, we see, secondly, the symptoms of obeying in order to be cleansed from sin. Look there in verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. What what are some of the ways I can recognize that? Well, first, if, if we're picking and choosing what to obey in the Bible, if we're picking and choosing what to obey in the Bible, God had commanded Israel in the Old Testament to give a tenth of the produce of the land. You know, this was to support, we saw this in Malachi, to support the work of the temple and the temple workers. And it was to provide for those in need, like widows and foreigners and orphans. So the Pharisees were willing to sort of take up even these little herbs. Even some of these weren't demanded to be by God's law to be given, to be tithed off of. So they were willing to take these little herbs and and cut them up and and make sure that they weren't failing to give a tenth of what they had. Again, they're going above and beyond the call of duty. 
But Jesus says, you love to do that and you're willing to do that, but you're neglecting the what he calls elsewhere the weightier matters of the law. You're neglecting justice and the love of God. We've seen in Luke 10 that Jesus has already uh, instructed the people that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is likened to it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, here he uses justice and the love of God. Justice is loving your neighbor and loving God. And the examples of what they have failed to do here. I'm kind of mixed up there. These Pharisees had failed to love God, and therefore they failed to love their neighbor or to enact justice. Not surprisingly, the Pharisees focus on the matter that's sort of easy to measure. It actually costs them a little bit less. It's easier to fulfill this duty. Loving God and enacting justice are much more difficult. They're much harder to discern. They're much more costly. We saw that in the parable of the Good Samaritan, that, that it costs the Good Samaritan time and effort and money and his schedule. So loving God and acting justly towards your neighbor requires not just 10%, but it requires your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus' condemnation to the Pharisees here is, you know what, you'll give a tenth of your herbs, but you would walk right on by a man on the side of the road who is lying beaten, half dead, and in need of help. And so what self-righteousness leads to, the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, it leads to ignoring parts of the Scripture. And it has to be that way, right? If we're convinced that we can sort of clean ourselves up before God, now I have to sort of pick and choose the parts of the Bible that I want to do and ignore other parts of the Bible because if I take all of it, there's no way I'm going to see my own condemnation. I have to minimize those, the, the love of neighbor, the love of God. But I'll make up for it by being really strict in these other areas, and I'll even add a few regulations over here to sort of make up for this ignoring of the law over here. So self-righteousness naturally leads to picking and choosing what we want to believe and obey in the Bible. There's a second characteristic. It's, it's pride. We see it there in verse 43. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces. So another curse is pronounced here on the Pharisees because of their pride. It is seen in their their love for adulation. They feed off of the the acclaim, the respect, the, the greetings in the marketplace, the applause of man that they receive from others. So instead of going to the synagogue to, to honor God, they go to receive compliments, to pat themselves on the back. Praise for their great devotion to the Lord. They love the applause of man. Now, now I, I believe people are generally under-encouraged, so it's important for us to be encouragers. But we need to recognize in our own heart the, the tendency and, and the ease with which we might begin to live for that sort of thing to live for the applause of man, to live for affirmation. Remember that we are not seeking the applause of others. We are looking forward to that climactic uh, word from Christ. 
Well done, good and faithful servants. A third symptom or characteristic, those who are going the way of self-righteousness, falling under the sway of the Pharisee here, are not only deceived themselves, but they are leading others to the grave. Verse 44, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. We talked about those laws of uncleanness and touching a dead body, and one of the ways to become unclean was actually to touch a grave. Even walking over a grave that you didn't realize was there would make you unclean for seven days according to the law. And that's why it became common practice to sort of paint these gravestones in white so they would be noticeable and no one would accidentally make themselves unclean by stumbling over someone's grave. But sometimes these graves were not well marked and, or unmarked and someone would unknowingly walk over it and they would become unclean. And Jesus is saying, you're like an unmarked grave because you're not only unclean yourself, but you are defiling others as they fall underneath your sway and your influence and your teaching. Notice Jesus says they, they don't even recognize it, but they are deceiving others by bringing them underneath their legalistic instruction. And so what looks promising and what looks good on the outside is actually leading to death because it's ignoring God's word. It's ignoring God's message. That's why we said in the beginning that, that this legalistic spirit, the self-righteousness, thinking I can cleanse myself before God, it, it's, it's subtle because it looks good on the outside. Paul says in Colossians 2, it has an appearance of godliness. Legalism is like carbon monoxide poisoning. You can't tell. It's, it's, you can't smell it. You don't know it's coming. It's a subtle killer. It sneaks in undetected and it leads to death. And these are some harsh words from Jesus towards the Pharisees. He is a dinner guest, and he is going hard in the paint on these guys. And it causes a lawyer, or, or we might call them scribes in the crowd in verse 45, to, to say essentially this, like, uh, excuse me, Jesus, but it, you know, we're kind of offended by this too. And I don't know if he expected Jesus to say like, well, you know, sorry about that. This is just towards the Pharisees. Lawyers, you guys are doing a good job. But these two, they ran in close circles. So the lawyer is offended. And Jesus essentially says something like, yeah, I know. And now let me turn my attention to you. So these lawyers, they would study the word. Remember, uh, you know, Israel was a theocracy. So uh, what, what law is a lawyer in Israel going to study? Well, they're going to study God's law. And so he asked Jesus, apparently, or he tells Jesus we're offended, thinking that Jesus might apologize or change course, but he, he doesn't. Turns his attention to the lawyers that are present at this dinner, and he begins pronouncing woes on them. Look at verse 46. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. What's another symptom of self-righteousness? Well, it's loading heavy burdens on people and being unwilling to help bear the load with them. That, that word burden is actually used in Acts to describe a ship's cargo. 
I mean, this is, this is a heavy weight laid on someone's shoulders. And in the context, it's, it's the weight of, uh, of misusing God's law and the weight of adding laws to God's law. And this crushes the spirit. This is a heavy burden on someone's shoulders and it's weighing them down and it's crushing them. You see, the law of God, rightly understood, was meant to drive people to God and to His grace, ultimately finding their only hope in Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law on their behalf. But the legalistic use of the law in adding to the law crushes those underneath that weight. We cannot bear up underneath the law. And we cannot bear up underneath legalistic expectations added to the law. And so... One application for us here is is for parents, we need to be careful here. Because one of the ways that we can provoke our children to wrath, which I I think is more like rebellion, not like, oh, you made your kid angry. You must have sinned against him. No, it's not that. It's for a kid to get to a point where he sees no other option but to walk out, to walk away from Christ. One of the ways that we can weigh down our children and provoke them to anger is by putting legalistic expectations on their shoulders. We can discourage them from following Christ if we give them the impression that that God is only lawgiver and he is constantly disappointed in us and shows no grace, no path towards forgiveness. So one of the things we can can do is uh, help children connect to the gospel you know, and one of the things we can do is not discipline children for making mistakes. You know, we kind of sort of differentiate between sin and mistakes. I think our record at a restaurant is like five spilled drinks in one meal. And that's frustrating, right? But it's not sin. And so I want to help my kids sort of understand that, that difference between disobedience to God and maybe you should be more careful next time. Some of you are smiling because you've been to dinner with us. (laughs) You know, we can pray and ask God for his help. Because this is is beyond us for parents. Pray and ask God for his help. That we can avoid encouraging our kids to clean the outside of the cup while ignoring the inside of the cup. That God would empower us to walk in righteousness and obedience and grace and mercy towards our kids so that they might know the grace of God. Now, we can't change their heart. We can't save. So I'm not saying this is a one-to-one. But not only did the scribes lay these burdens upon the people, but they didn't share the load. Now, I don't think this is saying the scribes, lawyers, didn't do what they told other people to do, which I think is actually probably true at times. But instead, Jesus is is simply condemning them for creating these burdens and crushing people with these burdens and then just sort of sending them off to bear this load all by themselves. All they did was multiply the ways that this person might offend God, but there was no path back to God, no path to forgiveness, no grace when one breaks that law that was breaking their backs. So they lay heavy burdens on people's shoulders. Fifth, Israel was guilty of rejecting God's message, sometimes even by killing his messengers. Look in verses 47 through 51. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. 
So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, we required of this generation. Jesus is essentially saying to these people that the only prophet you honor is a dead prophet. The only prophet you honor is the one who's not in your face calling you to repent of sin. The way to honor the prophets for, for these Pharisees was not to decorate a tomb, but to obey their words. And they're refusing to obey the words of the prophets. He's essentially saying that, that, that you say you honor the prophets, but if Isaiah or Jeremiah or Elijah or Ezekiel, if any of the prophets were here, you would oppose them just like your fathers opposed them. You would reject them and their message. Again, this is just one more example of their outward piety. Oh, we love the prophets. But the inward defilement where they would reject the message of the prophets. The same wickedness and greed that drove their ancestors to reject the prophets and in some cases kill them is living within the scribes and the Pharisees. We've already seen it in Luke. We've seen it in the way they've rejected John the Baptist. And we see it in the way that they oppose Jesus. We'll see it really clearly at the end of the gospel when Pilate says, well, what shall I do with Jesus? And they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. How do we know they would reject Isaiah and Elijah and Jeremiah? Because they crucified the one whom those prophets were pointing forward to. So this word prophet in this sense, it's used to describe any of those in the Old Testament who testified to God's way of righteousness. So even Abel is included here in this list of prophets. Abel, as we know, in Genesis chapter 4, that's why Jesus says from, from the foundation of the world, you've been killing these prophets. Well, Abel was pretty early in the foundation of the world. He brought a proper sacrifice to the Lord and was killed by his brother. And the, the voice of his blood, the text says, was crying out for vengeance. In that sense, he was God's messenger. And this is a scathing rebuke towards Israel as Jesus identifies them with Cain as opposed to Abel. You are the seed of the serpents. So he says, from Abel to Zechariah, you've been rejecting these prophets. The Hebrew Bible was actually structured different than our, than our English Bibles. The Hebrew Bible would end in 2 Chronicles. And so it starts in Genesis with Abel, end in 2 Chronicles with the prophet Zechariah being murdered for calling out the sins of the people. So Jesus is saying from A to Z, from beginning to end of the Old Testament, the prophets were rejected. And not only that, but God will send more prophets. He will send apostles to you and you will put them to death as well. They have thoroughly rejected God and his message and therefore incur the wrath of God. Lastly, the characteristic, the symptom of this, they, they conceal the gospel. They conceal the gospel. Those who attempt to obey in order to be Cleanse from sin, conceal the gospel of Christ. Look at verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. 
the ones who were tasked with interpreting God's word, were actually the ones who became obstacles to people finding and knowing God. They hindered those seeking eternal life from actually finding it. They prevented others from grasping salvation and are therefore guilty of causing others to fall, like the Pharisees, guilty of bringing those others under the condemnation of death. They missed the point of the law. And so they brought people underneath this heavy burden. Many of us can kind of look back on our education and we can think of a teacher who really impacted us, really really changed the course of our life. If you love math, it's probably because you had a great math teacher. If you love literature, it's probably because some teacher made literature come alive for you. Well, these Pharisees and scribes and lawyers were the opposite of that. They took what should have been the key to life, the revelation of God, and they hid it. And they taught something else. And they concealed the gospel. They concealed the hope of God. They obscured the subject they were supposed to teach, and so they turned people off to the message of the coming of the Messiah. Legalistic teachers obscure the gospel because the gospel turns, calls for them to turn from their hypocrisy, repent of the defilement of their hearts, to humble themselves, to admit they need a Savior, and to follow Jesus. That's a hard word. So they obscure it and they make it mean something else. So hopefully we, we can understand then the harsh tone that Jesus takes with these leaders. We see third, the results of obeying in order to be cleansed from sin. The results of obeying in order to be cleansed from sin. There are two things in the text that result from this attitude. The first is they oppose Jesus. The second is they incur God's judgment because they oppose Jesus. The passage ends in verses 53 and 54. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So the passage ends with the scribes and Pharisees enraged towards Jesus. The temperature of the room has gone up. And they begin to press him harder and harder. They seek to lay snares for him to catch him in something that he might say so that they might discredit him because they are furious with him. They want to expose him. They are lying in wait to catch him. This is, this is hunting language. They're laying a snare, hoping he walks into it to his own downfall. Ironically, in doing this, they are fulfilling the very words that Jesus just said about them. That you, you kill the prophets. And now they begin scheming and how they might discredit Jesus and it ends with them killing Christ. As a result of their rejection of God and his word and, and the plan of God to send Jesus Christ into the world to save sinners, the second result of the self-righteousness, this moralism, is judgment. It's wrath. We saw, we, we sort of skipped over it for a season, but... You know, these condemnations, these symptoms, these characteristics of, of moralism incur what Jesus calls as a woe. Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes. Woe to you, lawyers. You know, if you mark up in your Bible, you might just underline those six occurrences in this text. The woe is a curse that's coming. 
It's a warning of coming catastrophe and judgment which looms if the current behavior continues. In other words, the judgment of God is knocking at the door. It is near. The reality is that when Jesus pronounces a woe, it is not a wish, it is an authoritative judgment. And it is made by Christ. And if you persist in this, catastrophe is coming, judgment is coming, wrath is coming. Woe unto you. So all those who insist on taking care of their own defilement before God, including us this morning, all anyone who thinks I can clean myself up, I can cleanse myself, I can be good enough to earn God's righteousness, all those who insist on dealing with their own defilement before God sit under the wrath of God and will one day incur the penalty for sin. And so we need an answer to our defilement. We need an answer to our defilement. This is a huge problem because in Revelation 21, in talking about the new heavens, new earth, and in the new Jerusalem, the Bible says nothing unclean will ever enter it. So we've got a huge problem. We are defiled and nothing defiled will enter God's presence. So what's the answer? Jesus provides the only way. Lastly, the alternative the alternative to obeying in order to be cleansed from sin. You see, the religious leaders thought they could cleanse themselves from their sins, so they they sought to do that by, you know, strict obedience, adding rules and regulations and requirements. And in doing that, they not only deceived themselves, but they deceived those who would follow them. They concealed the hope of the gospel found only in Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus is so harsh. And that's why he pronounces these woes and this curse against legalistic, moralistic self-righteousness. You know, at first we might want to sympathize with, with the Pharisees and say, you know what? Like, man, they just want to go the extra mile. Is God the boss that yells at his employer for working too hard? You went above and beyond the call of duty. Now we're going to dock your pay. No, that's not it. They, they've obscured God's word and they'd have obscured God's message and they've led others astray by insisting on the traditions of men above the word of God and above even the work of Christ himself. So if you've been hurt this morning in your past by this kind of false teaching, maybe you grew up in this sort of environment or, or, or a church that taught this and I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about like, I see all over social media like, oh, I survived the church. My mom made me go to church. My parents disciplined me. They read me the Bible. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about self-righteousness that was cloaked in religious language that, that is destructive because it conceals the gospel. If you sort of came up in that, Jesus provides a better way. He provides the only way. And you know what? Jesus actually stands beside you in defense of you over against this legalism that you grew up in. And that stuff runs deep. It's hard to get past some of that. But when the, when the disciples are attacked for the very same thing, you know what Jesus does? He comes to the defense of them. He says, no, this is not what defiles a person. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles a person. It's what comes out of you that defiles a person. 
So he, defiled, he defended his disciples against the same charges. His work stands for you, not the opinion of others who might seek to bring you under legalistic, moralistic, self-righteous requirements. And so Jesus provides the only way. And his way begins with repentance. Implied in these woes is an opportunity to turn. Woe unto you. If you continue down this path, catastrophe is coming. But there's an implied call to repentance. It's like Jonah who went to Nineveh. All he said, hey, in 40 days you're going to be overthrown. That's all he said. But what happened? Nineveh repented and God withdrew his judgment. These woes have an implied judgment. The warning invites a turning from these types of attitudes and actions. And for the Pharisees and for us, turning to Christ involves not only turning our backs on our sin, but also trading in our own goodness and admitting that it's nothing before God and trusting that Jesus Christ was perfect and he suffered in our place so that I might be credited with his perfect record. We let go of anything that might be impressive about us. We let go of anything that we think might stand before the Lord. Our very best efforts, we say they're nothing, and we throw ourselves at the mercy of God found in Jesus Christ. Admitting that cleansing ourselves fall so short. Jesus would say elsewhere, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of God. The Pharisees, I mean outwardly, they were the righteous of the righteous. And you must have a greater righteousness than the Pharisees to enter the kingdom of God. Well, how is that possible? Only possible by being totally and utterly reliant on the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf to make you clean, to take care of your defilements. The righteousness of the Pharisees fell short because they didn't evaluate on the right standard. God's holiness and righteousness. The death of Jesus is the only way by which we might be made pure before God. Hebrews 9 says it this way. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. He's the only way by which we, we might be cleansed from our sin. The way of Jesus begins with repentance. It requires utter reliance on him as the only way, and it results in rest for his people. While the lawyers are laying up heavy burdens on, shoulder, on shoulders with their legalistic requirements, Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Many of you are somewhat familiar with the story of uh, Martin Luther, the reformer. You know, he wrestled with this despair of his own unrighteousness, his own defilement. You know, I often say that, like today, we have to convince people they are sinners. Luther was like very convinced he was a sinner. He didn't know how God could deal with his sin. 
And he began, he was so afflicted in his soul that he began to feel like God was actually, actually uh, personally afflicting Luther, pouring out his judgment by afflicting his soul and by reminding him of his own inability to earn his own righteousness. And he was reading in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's connecting that with the fact that Jesus cried that out on the cross. And he, could, he said, I know why I feel that way. I know why I'm in despair, but why did Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was perfect. He had no reason to be afflicted. But soon Luther would learn that Christ's cry is the result of of Jesus taking on himself the sin of humanity as man's substitute. And Luther realized that if, if Christ took his sin on himself, then Luther is made righteous. The very thing that he had labored to obtain was given to him freely in Christ because Jesus took on sin so that we might have confidence that God is our loving Father. The way of Jesus results in rest. The way of Jesus empowers us to truly obey from a heart of love. The way of Jesus empowers us to truly obey from a heart of love. Here's here's where we began. We obey because of our purity, not in order to be pure before God. True Christianity is inside out. It's not outside in. So we shouldn't look at the teaching of Jesus here and conclude that God doesn't care about our obedience. Obeying God is not legalism. God does care about our obedience, but he desires for us to obey him from a clean heart and a pure conscience that comes through Christ. I think that's what Jesus is driving at there in verse 41 when he tells the Pharisees, give as alms those things that are within. Give yourself first to God and he will make you clean. And then you can walk in true and right obedience. Listen with this. How different Christ is from these religious hypocrites. How different Christ is from these religious hypocrites. Hypocrites, how, how different he is from us who often fall into some of these same trappings or allow the leaven of the Pharisees to sort of leaven our life a little bit. They pick and choose what to obey. They pick and choose to obey these easy commands and, and deny justice and the love of God. Jesus obeyed every word perfectly in order to fulfill all righteousness. The religious hypocrites are proud Paul says that Jesus humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, even to the point of the death on the cross. These Pharisees, they lead others to death. Yet Jesus is the life of God, and he grants life to all those who come to him. They put heavy burdens on people. We saw in Matthew 11 that Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. They reject the word. He is the word. They concealed the gospel. Jesus is the revelation of God's plan to save sinners from their sins if they would only humble themselves and turn to Christ and admit their sin and rely on his work. And honestly, that's what we do as we gather as a church. That's what we do as we gather is to remind ourselves of the work of Christ on our behalf, to remind ourselves of where our cleanness comes from, So that when we do preach commands from the Bible, they're motivated not out of a legalistic spirit, but out of a love for God, for his work for us, finished 
on the cross through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. It illuminates our minds and our hearts. It may it drive false teaching. May it drive sinful tendencies out of our hearts. May we live in the light. Lord, we thank you. May you be pleased and glorified with us. In Jesus' name, amen.